15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello and thanks for joining us on another edition of the Space Nuts podcast, episode 223. Uh, my name is Andrew Dunkley and joining me, as always, is the good Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. Um, it's nice to be good for a change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're always good, Fred. And, uh, and some of the things that people used to say about me. <laughs> oh, look, I think we've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> They're saying it about the federal treasurer this week because the uh, the budget's been released uh, and it's um, the COVID the COVID budget. Some scary numbers, but um, you know uh, you've got to keep the economy going, and that means spending money, and that means going into debt, and that means our children and our children's children and their children are all going to uh, have to pick up the slack in a few years' time. But that's the way it goes, um, unfortunately, and I'm sure it'll be the same in many other countries around the world for years to come. Now, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, there's a few people you want to mention that have won uh, uh, prizes, uh, the Nobel Prize we're talking about. Uh, one of the stories that's uh, in the news this week that uh, we're going to talk about is the um, uh, a study of comets which has revealed that our solar system has a second alignment plane, which uh, I think you'll find rather fascinating, but uh, maybe more so the possibility that around uh, two dozen, 24-odd exoplanets have better potential for life than Earth. That gets you thinking, doesn't it? So we'll look at that and some audience questions, one from Zoe in Northern Ireland and one from Gareth uh, This uh, coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. Now, Fred, a uh, few people you want to uh, mention briefly uh, as recipients of the Nobel Prize. This would, would be the Nobel Prize for Science, is it? It's physics, yeah. So the 2020 Nobel yeah. Prize for Physics, indeed, being shared uh, in... Kind of two halves. Uh, half goes to that esteemed British physicist, Sir Roger Penrose. Uh, he, uh, you, and I, you and I have talked about Roger many times because of his work on the idea that black holes might spawn new universes. But his, his prize is not for that. Uh, it's for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. Uh, in other words, uh, he basically proved that black holes exist mathematically. Um, uh -huh. Very well-known physicist. I, I'm sure I've told you before, I was once at a, a public lecture uh, that Roger gave here in Sydney, uh, and halfway through the lecture, his mobile phone rang, and he took the call. <laughs> so somebody in Oxford, I think, saying, what do we do about this? So he spoke for about five minutes and then got back to his lecture. Uh, <laughs> very very individual style. Uh, so he, he's got half the prize, and the other half goes to two really big names in... Uh, in the science of black hole observations, uh, Reinhard Genzel, who is German, and uh, Andrea Gates, who is American, they have both independently and using different instruments have uh, observed the orbits of stars around the black hole at the centre of our galaxy, the supermassive black hole. So they've uh, looked at the way stars swarm around it. They've measured the orbits of those stars, which is why we know the mass of that black hole uh, so accurately. Um, it's about 4 million 
times the mass of the sun. Uh, so um, uh, Andrea Gates has used the Keck telescopes in Hawaii uh, to observe the galactic centre, while uh, Reinhard Gensel has used the European Southern Observatory's VLT, the very large telescope down there in Chile. And uh, they've produced basically they've produced movies over the last more than 20 years they've both been working since the 1990s on this uh, they pr pr produce movies of the, the motion of these stars around the, around the galactic centre it's stunning stuff um, you, you can't actually see the galactic centre directly in visible light so they used infrared uh, light to you know the infrared uh, radiation released by these stars to 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 penetrate the dust that lies between ourselves and the galactic center. Fantastic stuff. Uh, I've been following their work uh, for for well over twenty years, and I'm delighted that they both um, shared the second half of this Nobel Prize. Uh, the first half going to Roger Penrose. So it's great news. Mm. It is indeed, and uh, yeah, I think anybody who uh, achieves those signs, uh, those sorts of uh, levels of uh, greatness uh, certainly deserve, deserve to be recognised for it. And uh, uh, while the Nobel Prize came about because of something terribly destructive called dynamite, <laughs> it's, uh, it's certainly being used for very good things these days, is it not? Yeah, that's right. That's great stuff. Mm. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, let's move on to our first topic and a, uh, a study of comets revealing that our solar system has a second alignment plane now i'm guessing the first one is the planets that's right yeah which is the the plane of the the, the orbit of the planets is called the ecliptic uh it's a very flat plane i mean um the the the, the misfits are mercury and venus near the middle they're tilted at a few degrees to the plane but most of the rest of the planets are um you know, are, are essentially lie in this same plane, the plane of the Earth's orbit, you know, is the, actually the ecliptic itself. <clears throat> uh, it was one of the reasons why Pluto was seen as an outsider very early on in uh, our, the history of our knowledge of Pluto, because it's inclined at, if I remember rightly, it's 17 degrees, I think, to the ecliptic plane. So it's, it sits well out of it. Anyway, that mm. plane is what Probably, um, uh, you know, four, <clears throat> four and a half billion years ago when the solar system was young, uh, was, was a disk of material, uh, the, the protoplanetary disk. Uh, but what's now happened is a scientist in Japan uh, who's, uh, whose name is Arika Higuchi, I think that's pronouncing it properly, um, uh, who's actually at the University of Occupational and Environmental Health in Japan. It's an unusual... Uh, name for a university, but she's working there and uh, basically has worked on uh, some of the uh, the um, National Observatories projects, the, the National Observatory in Japan. So um, she's basically said, okay, that ecliptic plane may well have come about because of the influence of the the gravity of our galaxy, the whole galaxy itself. In other words. The Milky Way, the plane of the Milky Way, exerts gravitational forces, and uh, so she looked at <clears throat> the way those forces, excuse me, <clears throat> would might have uh, set up the ecliptic. In other words, the, the the plane of this planetary disk, protoplanetary disk, in the early history of the solar system, how that might have been set up in the first place, uh, because the ecliptic's tilted over with respect to the disk of the Milky Way, by about 60 degrees. It's an angle of roughly 60 degrees. And what she found was um, that 
there should be another uh, plane that would be favoured by the galactic, the effect of galactic gravity on the young solar system. So we've got the ecliptic tilted over at 60 degrees, and the calculations show that there should be another plane also at 60 degrees to the Milky Way, but in the opposite direction. Um, and she called it the empty ecliptic because essentially it doesn't contain a, a planetary system uh, like uh, you know like like the the real ecliptic uh, and that's a really interesting mathematical entity it comes from our study of oh, her study of the the gravitational pull of the galaxy but then she looked at the orbits of comets and uh, th that in itself is an interesting thing because um, the suggestion is that comets actually started off being formed in the ecliptic. We, know, we now know that comets occupy this spherical shell around the solar system called the Oort cloud, um, and that's because they sort of come in from all directions. But what she's saying is that originally those comets would have been, in, they would have been probably concentrated in the ecliptic, but also perhaps in what we now see as the empty ecliptic. And so, uh, to cut a long story short, doing calculations uh, of the orbits of comets, she looked at the statistics of it, and sure enough, uh, she finds peaks in the, uh, the, the basically the direction of, uh, of uh, actually of the, um, the aphelion, the, the farthest point from the sun. Uh, she finds two peaks in this distribution in the comet, in our, you know, catalogue of comets, one near the ecliptic and one near the empty ecliptic. Uh, so it's really interesting to find that you can make a prediction uh, from, you know, the, the dynamics of our own galaxy, how it relates to the solar system, and then uh, make some, uh, you know, look at the catalogue of, of, uh, of cometary objects that we have already available and find that there is evidence that what she's saying is correct. A nice piece of work. Mm. So would it be fair to say to this point in time we've just assumed that all the comets are on the same plane and we've we've not really looked into their um, yeah, their, their origin uh, to, to a greater degree because so we weren't aware? Yeah, so so we it's been the opposite. We've assumed that comets have have come in from anywhere. They've been not in the plane, but in this spherical shell, the Oort cloud, uh, and that's certainly the case. We, you know, they do come in from all directions. That's why Jan Oort proposed the idea of this spherical shell of comets. But what this work is showing is that uh, the, the Oort cloud probably started off exactly as you've said with comets in the plane of the solar system, because that's sort of how they should be formed. But because comets are small objects uh, and, it, and, have been, and they're a long way out, the, 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 you know, they're, they're in the depths of the solar system, they've been perturbed by the passage of other stars and things of that sort, which is why they're now in a spherical shell. But I, I think what she's saying is that even within that spherical distribution of comets, there is a sort of fossil remnant of the fact that they started off not only in the ecliptic, but also in this empty ecliptic as well, uh, the two ecliptic directions. I haven't mm. actually looked at the, um, the, the original paper for this, which I'm going to do because it's such interesting work. Uh, but um, so, yeah, basically this is a, you know, this is a second-hand report, but 
um, it's a yeah, it's a it's a very interesting piece of work, and it's quite far-reaching, really. It um, yes. gives us an insight into the history of our solar system. Yeah, and from what I've read, the um, that this now opens up future study of long-period comets, so that they can you know double-check their work, I suppose, that's so they right. can yeah confirm their beliefs, confirm their theories. Yeah, and, and that's what happens, isn't it? When you come up with an idea, you've got to find a way of proving it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and actually, the, there's uh, something on the on the agenda, um, which is you and I have spoken about the the Vera C. Rubin Telescope, which used to be called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, should open for business. I think it's next year or the following year. It's been held up a bit by COVID nineteen. They're they're still building it um, down there in Chile. Uh, not very far from La Serena. Uh, I saw it last year, actually, the construction site. But this telescope will survey the entire sky uh, every week, effectively, every few days. And it's looking for what are called transient events. Uh, and that uh, is, you know, they, they, it'll pick up thousands of comets, this this uh, telescope, uh, and uh, as well as asteroids. So we might have... Um, more evidence for the for the for this empty ecliptic being a real thing uh, by the time that those surveys are done on the uh, on the Vera Rubin telescope. Fascinating, exciting. Stuff. All right, well, they're definitely. It is, yes, and there'll definitely be uh, more to talk about once that sort of information starts to filter back. So uh, we will watch with interest, as I say, Fred. You are listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred uh, Watson over there. Yes, I'm over here. He's over there. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space 
for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Space Nuts. Thanks for listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here with the good Professor Fred Watson. Uh, now, um, something I haven't mentioned for a long time is the Space Nuts shop. You can find it on our website, uh, spacenutspodcast.com. Uh, you can click on the, um, the, the shop tab and uh, there's new products that I didn't even know we had, like the bubble-free stickers. You can now get the Space Nuts logo in the form of a sticker. Uh, there's the dad hat. <laughs> what's a what's a dad? I don't know what a dad hat is, but there I'm I'm thinking it's like a baseball cap, but you know a bit more daggy looking, perhaps uh, more more akin to something an astronomer might wear. Uh, whatever, um, embroidered t-shirts for men and women. We've got the matte black magic coffee cup. We could probably drink tea out of it or something else. Um, we've got polo shirts. We've got uh, coloured mugs with the the big logo on them. Uh, we've even got. The unisex hoodie, the Space Nuts unisex hoodie is available. It's all on the Space Nuts shop on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. My goodness, <laughs> it's just going gangbusters. And, um, yeah, there's some good stuff there. With Christmas coming up and, you know, you've got a dad that doesn't have, um, you know, you've got no idea what to get him, the dad hat would be a go, I reckon, Uh yeah, or, or a polo shirt or a mug or get him one of everything. Why not? Uh, <laughs> now, Fred, let us uh, move on to um, this study of, uh, well, um, exoplanets effectively. And what they've uh, found is possibly a couple of dozen exoplanets that seem to have a better potential for life than Earth. Now, to this point in time, Earth is still the only place in the whole universe that we are aware of that has life. But we strongly suspect there will be other places, perhaps in our own solar system, that harbour some kind of life, probably microbial. But to, to actually be bold enough to step out and say, well, we think these 24-odd planets are probably better than Earth for harbouring life is a pretty big leap of faith, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah um, that's, well, it's a, an interesting idea. Are, are there, you know, places that can out-Earth the Earth? And apparently there are. Um, this is some well, work. We're, we're, making, we're making it easier for them. Well, yes, that's right. It's, you know, planets that, um, that may have uh, conditions better than the Earth and indeed may orbit stars that are better than our sun. <laughs> so uh, what, what has happened is a group of scientists led by somebody at Washington State University, I think he's also con uh, connected with the Technical University in Berlin. His name is Dirk Schulze-Makuch, and uh, he has uh, got together with uh, some colleagues, um, René Heller from the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research and Edouard Guinan of uh, Villanova University. So there you are. This group of scientists have basically looked at what they call superhabitability criteria. So not just habitability, but superhabitability. And they've looked uh, through the list of 4,500 now known exoplanets uh, to find candidates for uh, planets that might be better 
better than our own. And as you said, they found, I think it's 24, yes, within, uh, the, none of them are within 100 light years, though. They're all quite a long way away. Uh, nevertheless, so what, uh, what they've done is taken these criteria. So first of all, of course, habitability doesn't mean that planets definitely have life. It means they've got the conditions that will be conducive to life. So uh, super habitability means that they've got the conditions that will be super conducive to life. In other words, uh, might be even better than they are here. Um, so they looked at uh, terrestrial type planets, uh, rocky planets, uh, orbiting in the basically in the Goldilocks zone of the uh, Kepler object of interest uh, exoplanet archive. This is, uh, uh, you know, Kepler, the, the spacecraft that, um, that discovered a very large number of these exoplanets by the transit method. They pass in front of their parent stars and dim the light. So they've said, OK, take, take, just take the ones that, that live within the the, um, the, the habitable zone or the, the liquid water zone, uh, the Goldilocks zone, as we call it, of these objects. And then the, what they also looked at was uh, lifespan, uh, how long uh, a, a star lasts. So our sun has a lifespan roughly 10 billion years, and we're about halfway through it at the moment. Uh, but there are many other stars which are cooler uh, and uh, less massive, but go through their hydrogen fuel much more slowly, uh, in particular what we call K-star, K-dwarf stars, uh, they've got uh, much, much longer lifespans, more than 20 billion years, sometimes up to 70 billion years. So it means that if you have a star that's going to last all this time, you're giving life a, a longer chance to, to evolve. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're to some extent improving the chances of life kicking off. On the other hand, you don't want a planet to be so old that it's got no geothermal heat, that its core is not liquid, uh, because the liquid core is probably what generates a protective magnetic field, and you don't want to lose that. You don't want to, your magnetic field to wear out. Uh, so that you don't have protection from the radiation from your parent star, particularly because these K dwarfs are quite active and they probably spit out a lot more radiation than the sun does. So uh, they make this point that the sweet spot for life is a planet that is between 5 billion and 8 billion years old. That's the, the kind of the, 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 the zone that they think is the sweet spot. Uh, and then they talk about the size of a planet. Uh, clearly, if you've got a planet that's bigger than the Earth, it, you might expect, unless it's an ocean world, that it would have more land. Um, if it's a little bit bigger, this suggests 50% uh, bigger than the Earth's mass, you'd uh, retain more in interior heat. Uh, and so uh, you'd, you'd keep the magnetic field going. And you'd also have stronger gravity. Uh, a larger le level of gravity, which means that you could keep an atmosphere, uh, you know, more solidly than, than a smaller planet. So um, they also point to uh, a slightly warmer temperature. Um, if I remember rightly, the Earth's average temperature, mean temperature is 15 degrees Celsius. They suggest if you go up about five degrees, then... Uh, and especially if you've got more moisture in the atmosphere, you've got a better chance of life. And they point to 
the fact that uh, this warmth and moisture preference we find on Earth, because when you look at tropical rainforests, uh, you've got much greater biodiversity than you do uh, elsewhere, you know, in, in areas that are not as, as warm and moist. So those are the candidates, those are the criteria. Um, they say that, uh, that this 24 top planet candidates that they've dug out, none of them actually meet all their criteria, including the things that we've just listed. Um, one, have, one of them has four of the critical characteristics, apparently, making it, um, as they say, possibly much more comfortable for life than our home planet. Um, so Dirk uh, Schulze-Makuch says, it's sometimes difficult to convey this principle of superhabitable planets because we think we have the best planet. We have a great number of complex and diverse life forms and many that can survive in extreme environments. It's good to have adaptable life, but that doesn't mean we have the best of everything. So it's really quite an interesting idea, the idea of superhabitability. Uh, and, you know, it, it, when you do studies like this, uh, Andrew, it, it essentially sheds a bit of more light on our own environment and tells us a little bit more about our own planet uh, mm. and, uh, uh, you know, what its shortcomings are in perhaps. Yeah, yeah well, um, you know, I, I couldn't get past the headline, Size Matters. But uh, obviously, if, if you could find a planet that's a little bit bigger, as you said, the gravity would work in our favour, keep the um, uh, interior hotter uh, for longer and the atmosphere would hold better. Uh, but there's, there's, there's also the issue, if we ever are capable of leaving Earth and, and colonising another planet, we, we do have to actually find something that uh, we can handle in terms of gravity. And that's something they never portray well in science fiction because everyone can go from planet to planet in some circumstances and they all walk the same way regardless. But uh, clearly there are huge challenges for any future exodus to uh, a potentially livable planet outside of our uh, our own and gravity's got to come into effect it's uh, you uh, we notice that when you get off the planet muscle wastage well the opposite would be true if you went to a, a planet like earth that was one and a half times bigger you would have issues with the amount of gravity surely yeah, it'd do your knees in for a start, I can tell you. Um, yeah. <laughs> speaking as someone who's had his own knees done in by Earth's gravity, or one of them anyway. Look, um, uh, just as a postscript to this, Andrew, as you probably know, I'm a big fan not of colonising other worlds, but of building our own megastructures that would allow us to, uh, to live off Earth in space in large numbers with whatever gravity we choose, because these are like halo worlds, worlds where uh, the gravity is artificially created by centrifugal force so um that's the way to do it you can make your own gravity well, and you can go anywhere yeah, you like <laughs> now that's that's good thinking um, and that's probably the way migration will happen ultimately yeah. you'll have generations of people moving that's, through that's space right. yeah uh, and and the people who get there won't have been born for a long time after the exodus began but um one one particular uh, story i read recently the name escapes me um yeah the the, the people of our uh, solar system basically traveled in hollowed out asteroids that had been turned into um, long long haul spaceships yeah. and they were basically 
places where people lived and they they rotated so there was gravity uh, and they had gardens it was uh, you know it's not beyond the realms of possibility in the distant future I, I, I'd suggest very clever thinking I think it was a Kim Stanley Robinson novel he's very clever he's got a very very sharp uh, mind when it comes to potential ways of living in our solar system beyond Earth. It's, uh, uh, he wrote that amazing Mars series too, which is, uh, is a pretty heavy read, but uh, fascinating bloke. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's exciting that there are potentially livable planets out there. Hopefully, uh, if they keep looking into it, we might find some that are a bit closer, which would <laughs> may well be ideal for our future. Who knows? You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space nuts. Now, uh, something else I've not mentioned in recent episodes is that on our website, you can subscribe to our mailing list. Now, you can do that through your favourite podcast distributor, whether that's iTunes or Apple or YouTube or Stitcher or Google or iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, or maybe through your standard RSS feed. Um, uh, they're all ways of subscribing, or you can simply subscribe by filling out the um, uh, the information on our mailing list, which you will find on our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and tap on the subscribe option. You can also uh, become a patron by uh, signing up to your uh, via your favourite patri- uh, patron um, platform, whether it's Patreon, Acast, or Supercast. Uh, they're all available to you and the packages are many and varied. Um, can cost you as little as $3 a month US. But if you want to put in more, it's totally up to you. And as I've said many times, it is optional. The good news is uh, we will very, very soon uh, have uh, a bit more to add to our, um, our, our Patreon platforms in the form of bonus material. So stand by for that. Not far away. Uh, now, Fred, we've got some questions to, uh, to tackle. And uh, this one sort of uh, caught us all by um, surprise in in an amusing way because of um, I'm trying to, uh, as I read it, think of the accent in my mind because I think it would just enhance it so beautifully. Uh, But even our producer, Hugh, um, was was, uh, smiled when he read this one. This comes from Zoe in Northern Ireland. Hey, Zoe from Northern Ireland here. I rewatched the movie Interstellar the other day and they show how some random planet orbit a black hole, blah, blah, gravity makes time slower. In the movie, one hour on the planet is seven years on Earth. And I was wondering if uh, that fact or that actually can happen. If so, if you're able to watch Earth live from the planet, would Earth look like it was in fast forward? And this is the line that Hugh and I really love. Proper love the, the podcast, and you definitely make my long bus journeys to work much more enjoyable. Thank you. <laughs> That's lovely, Zoe. Thank you for reaching out and asking that question. Um, it's a, it's a, yeah, we've, we've had people ask questions about Interstellar many times before, and I don't know if you've yet seen it, Fred. Yes, but, I did. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And and then so where they go down to that water planet that is uh, orbiting a black hole, the uh, the issue becomes one of gravity, and uh, as a consequence of that, the time uh, dilation or variation causes an hour on the planet's surface to be a year, uh, seven years back on the spaceship, and therefore Earth. And could that really happen? Um, so. So what this is uh, depicting is something we call gravitational 
time dilation, the stretching of time by gravity. Uh, and we all experience it here on the surface of the Earth. Time's moving a little bit more slowly than it is for people up in the International Space Station because we're in the Earth's closer you know, to the centre of the Earth's gravitational field than they are, not by much. I mean, the amount of dilation is tiny. Uh, but uh, the, the idea of dilating time from one hour to seven years uh, is it, it's not possible because the that amount of time dilation would require such an enormous gravitational field that you would simply be spaghettified immediately. Uh, it, that's the the issue that you know your feet would feel a much greater gravitational pull than your than than your head, so you get turned into spaghetti. Um, so uh, that uh, that. A time dilation of one hour to seven years has been decried many times by observers of this of this movie. Um, that it, it, yes, the idea is correct that time is passing slower, uh, you know, in in, uh, in the um, in the gravitational field, but not by that amount. That amount is just a stretch too far by a very very long way. So um, no, not really, uh, and. Um, yeah, you, the fast-forward effect, um, it, it, the, you would, in, in a sense, you'd see the Earth moving in fast-forward <laughs> if you could see it at all. Uh, but, um, it's, but, yeah, once again, it, it's a, it, for any kind of survivable environment, which is what's being depicted on the planet, uh, the time dilation is much, much less. It's, you know, uh, something like... Um, uh, one day becoming a microsecond longer or something like that. It's not one hour becoming seven years. Mm. So is, <laughs> I, I, I suppose the question that pops into my mind is what is a feasible limit on time dilation, gravitational dilation? That you could survive. Is there, is there circumstances where it would be significant, I suppose? Uh, I, I think the answer is no. Um, if you wanted an environment that you could survive in, uh, it, it you know it's it wouldn't be significant. Okay, so that takes that's us back the to the of, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. Top of my head. <laughs> that takes us back to the discussion about discovering a livable exoplanet. Uh, again, uh, we talked about gravity gravity in terms of the effect yeah. on the human body. Yeah. Uh, but you'd also you'd also have to take time into account because you and I have talked before about uh, trying to live on Mars, for example, which almost has the same amount of day and uh, length as, as Earth, but mm. uh, long term it would be a, a, a very, very horrible place to try and live because you, you, your circadian rhythms wouldn't work and they, they don't adjust well as far as I remember our discussion. So there's, there's all sorts of elements to take into account if we ever move. And um, that's yeah. why we build our own space stations where you can make it 24 hour a day. But gravitational time dilation, uh, not a thing to the extreme that they go to in, um, in that movie. That's right. But it is science fiction. It is science fiction, Zoe, and you can do anything in science fiction, as I've discovered. And, <laughs> and you can make it seem so very real. Uh, look, it's a clever film. I love it. I really enjoy it. Uh, but they do uh, stretch the creative license quite a bit uh, in many aspects of the movie. But um, it wouldn't be science fiction if they didn't. 
So, um, yes. Uh, now, uh, and thanks for the question, Zoe, and thanks for um, uh, telling us how much you enjoy the podcast. Now, let's move on to a question from Gareth uh, Edwards. Uh, Gareth is uh, referring back to a, um, a discussion we had uh, some time ago, well, probably a month or so ago, about the rusty moon. Uh, we, we were talking about how the moon is actually rusting. Uh, he says, hi, I'm no chemist, as I'm sure this question reveals. Uh, in the recent episode about oxidisation on the moon, you mentioned that there, there was no hydrogen on the moon, which came, uh, uh, there was hydrogen on the moon, which came from the um, ice in polar craters, but that there was no obvious local source of oxygen. But given that ice is H2O, why can't it also be the source of oxygen? Best regards, Gareth. I've got a feeling we might have actually said that at the time, or maybe we said it off off camera. I'm not yeah. sure, but um, uh, you <laughs> bring up an interesting point. I think what we said, Andrew, was I wonder why you can't get ice, can't get the oxygen from H2O. So uh, Gareth's question's a great one, and I th I'm pretty sure we discussed it. I, I think I think it was offline that um, we ourselves didn't understand. And I think it. I think the answer is um, to do with you know it's uh, it's to do with the chemistry, and um, I'm not a chemist either, Gareth. So uh, you and I are in the same boat here. But it is certainly true that the lunar soil, the natural lunar soil, uh, has a huge component of oxygen in it. The, you know, a lot of the minerals are, are oxides of one form or another. And um, there's a, some work um, on the, that's to do with the Artemis project that is going to the moon now, people looking long-term about whether you can uh, whether you can actually use the lunar soil to generate oxygen. Uh, and apparently one of the uh, minerals that is um, very rich in oxygen is something called ilmenite, which, again, is a bit like what we're talking about. We were talking about hematite, uh, which is iron and oxygen. Ilmenite is a mixture of iron, titanium and oxygen. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the Artemis project talks about the chemistry required to extract that. So I'm not sure what the answer to your question is, but I think it is to do with the way the oxygen is bound up in these different minerals. And it may well be uh, that the hydrogen uh, is uh, the, the, the hydrogen you know that that is present in the uh, in the water of the poles um, that uh, tends to to leak away uh, so that you you would expect you'd end up with a with an oxygen rich environment in those um, in those frozen um, puddles in the south and north poles of the moon. Uh, why doesn't that provide the oxygen needed to uh, you know to oxidize iron to make hematite? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, some subtle chemistry here. Um, if I get time uh, in the next week or so, I'll go back to the. Uh, the original paper, which talked about the rusting of the moon and try and find out a bit more detail. But I'm sorry I don't have the, the answer at the moment, but it's a really good question. Uh, and uh, if there's anybody out there who knows the answer, don't hesitate to let us know. Absolutely, yes. We we do love to hear from you. And, and sometimes people have put forward uh, comments that um, are sort of we go, oh, yes, of course, that's that would make sense. That's the answer, uh, yes. uh, 
we will we welcome that as we do welcome your questions of course uh, via our website spacenutspodcast.com uh, you can just uh, message us your question um, the the traditional way uh, via text uh, or you can um, uh, record your question on the AMA link on our website. Uh, just click on that. If you've got a device with a microphone built in like a, a smartphone or a, a tablet or a laptop computer or whatever they call them these days, notebook, uh, you can just click record and say, hi, I'm Fred from Sydney and I want to know what uh, Andrew's next novel is about and we'll spend 24 hours talking about it for you. No questions asked. Um, but, you know, ask us anything you like and I will hand all that over to Fred because I don't have to answer any of them, which is a blessing. Um, but, um, yes, we do appreciate your questions and your feedback. Sometimes we just get emails from people um, wanting to say hi and that that's fine too. And, uh, you know, I've, I've found a long, long-suffering long Cincinnati Bengals fan, which I mentioned the other day, uh, they actually achieved a draw, their first non-loss of the season the other day, which I was impressed with. What a dogged battle that game was. Um, but that's beside the point. Uh, I think we've reached the end of another program. Fred, thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure, Andrew. That took me by surprise. <laughs> I thought we had hours to go yet. <laughs> Probably well, yeah. You know, we, we've gone a bit quicker this week than we normally would. Yeah, but, um, you know, yeah. very good. I, I, I take the philosophy that a story should be as long as it takes to tell. Exactly. So there we have it. Especially when you don't know the yeah. end. <laughs> but I will say that if you are a patron through Patreon or Supercast, some bonus material coming your way uh, very very soon. So stand by for that. We'll uh, uh, be um, getting onto that. Uh, very, very quickly indeed. So, Fred, uh, Fred, thank you very much. We'll catch you again uh, next week. Sounds great, Andrew. Thanks a lot. Take care. Look after yourself. See you soon. You too. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the crew here on the good ship Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, have a good week, stay safe, and we'll catch you again real soon. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.